Chapter One, Part Six of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume Two chapter one the crusades part six the saracens upon the ramparts beheld all these manifestations without alarm to incense the christians whom they despised they constructed rude crosses and fixed them upon the walls and spat upon and pelted them with dirt and stones this insult to the symbol of their faith raised the wrath of the crusaders to that height that bravery became ferocity and enthusiasm madness when all the engines of war were completed the attack was recommenced and every soldier of the christian army fought with a vigor which the sense of private wrong invariably inspires every man had been personally outraged and the knights worked at the battering rams with as much readiness as the meanest soldiers the saracen arrows and balls of fire fell thick and fast among them but the tremendous rams still heaved against the walls while the best marksmen of the host were busily employed in the several floors of the movable towers in dealing death among the turks upon the battlements godfrey raymond tancred and robert of normandy each upon his tower fought for hours with unwearied energy often repulsed but ever ready to renew the struggle the turks no longer despising the enemy defended themselves with the utmost skill and bravery till darkness brought a cessation of hostilities short was the sleep that night in the christian camp the priests offered up solemn prayers in the midst of the attentive soldiery for the triumph of the cross in this last great struggle and as soon as morning dawned every one was in readiness for the affray the women and children lent their aid the latter running unconcerned to and fro while the arrows fell fast around them bearing water to the thirsty combatants the saints were believed to be aiding their efforts and the army impressed with this idea surmounted difficulties under which a force thrice as numerous but without their faith would have quailed and been defeated raymond of toulouse at last forced his way into the city by escalade while at the very same moment tancred and robert of normandy succeeded in bursting open one of the gates the turks flew to repair the mischief and godfrey of bouillon seeing the battlements comparatively deserted let down the drawbridge of his movable tower and sprang forward followed by all the knights of his train in an instant after the banner of the cross floated upon the walls of jerusalem the crusaders raising once more their redoubtable war-cry rushed on from every side and the city was taken the battle raged in the streets for several hours and the christians remembering their insulted faith gave no quarter to young or old 
male or female, sick or strong. Not one of the leaders thought himself at liberty to issue orders for staying the carnage, and if he had, he would not have been obeyed. The Saracens fled in great numbers to the mosque of Soliman, but they had not time to fortify themselves within it ere the Christians were upon them. Ten thousand persons are said to have perished in that building alone. Peter the hermit, who had remained so long under the veil of neglect, was repaid that day for all his zeal and all his sufferings. As soon as the battle was over, the Christians of Jerusalem issued forth from their hiding places to welcome their deliverers. They instantly recognized the hermit as the pilgrim who, years before, had spoken to them so eloquently of the wrongs and insults they had endured, and promised to stir up the princes and people of Europe in their behalf. They clung to the skirts of his garments in the fervor of their gratitude, and vowed to remember him forever in their prayers. Many of them shed tears about his neck, and attributed the deliverance of Jerusalem solely to his courage and perseverance. Peter afterwards held some ecclesiastical office in the holy city, but what it was, or what was his ultimate fate, history has forgotten to inform us. Some say that he returned to France and founded a monastery, but the story does not rest upon sufficient authority. The grand object, for which the popular swarms of Europe had forsaken their homes, was now accomplished. The Moslem mosques of Jerusalem were converted into churches for a purer faith, and the Mount of Calvary and the Sepulchre of Christ were profaned no longer by the presence or the power of the infidel. Popular frenzy had fulfilled its mission, and, as a natural consequence, it began to subside from that time forth. The news of the capture of Jerusalem brought numbers of pilgrims from Europe, and among others, Stephen, Count of Chartres, and Hugh of Vermandois, to atone for their desertion, but nothing like the former enthusiasm existed among the nations. Thus then ends the history of the First Crusade. For the better understanding of the Second, it will be necessary to describe the interval between them, and to enter into a slight sketch of the history of Jerusalem under its Latin kings, the long and fruitless wars they continued to wage with the unvanquished Saracens, and the poor and miserable results which sprang from so vast an expenditure of zeal and so deplorable a waste of human life. The necessity of having some recognized chief was soon felt by the crusaders, and Godfrey de Bouillon, less ambitious than Bohemund or Raymond of Toulouse, gave his cold consent to wield a scepter, which the latter chiefs would have clutched with eagerness. He was hardly invested with the royal mantle before the Saracens menaced his capital. With much vigor and judgment, he exerted himself to follow up the advantages he had gained, and marching out to meet the enemy before they had time to besiege him in Jerusalem, he gave them battle at Ascalon and defeated them with great loss. He did not, however, live long to enjoy his new dignity, being seized with a fatal illness when he had only reigned nine months. 
to him succeeded his brother baldwin of edessa the latter monarch did much to improve the condition of jerusalem and to extend its territory but was not able to make a firm footing for his successors for fifty years in which the history of jerusalem is full of interest to the historical student the crusaders were exposed to fierce and constant hostilities often gaining battles and territory and as often losing them but becoming every day weaker and more divided while the saracens became stronger and more united to harass and root them out the battles of this period were of the most chivalrous character and deeds of heroism were done by the handful of brave knights that remained in syria which have hardly their parallel in the annals of war in the course of time however the christians could not avoid feeling some respect for the courage and admiration for the polished manners and advanced civilization of the saracens so much superior to the rudeness and semi-barbarism of europe at that day difference of faith did not prevent them from forming alliances with the dark-eyed maidens of the east one of the first to set the example of taking a paynim spouse was king baldwin himself and these connections in time became not only frequent but almost universal among such of the knights as had resolved to spend their lives in palestine these eastern ladies were obliged however to submit to the ceremony of baptism before they could be received to the arms of a christian lord these and their offspring naturally looked upon the saracens with less hatred than did the zealots who conquered jerusalem and who thought it a sin deserving the wrath of god to spare an unbeliever we find in consequence that the most obstinate battles waged during the reigns of the later kings of jerusalem were fought by the new and raw levies who from time to time arrived from europe lured by the hope of glory or spurred by fanaticism the latter broke without scruple the truces established between the original settlers and the saracens and drew down severe retaliation upon many thousands of their brethren in the faith whose prudence was stronger than their zeal and whose chief desire was to live in peace things remained in this unsatisfactory state till the close of the year eleven forty five when edessa the strong frontier town of the christian kingdom fell into the hands of the saracens the latter were commanded by zengi a powerful and enterprising monarch and after his death by his son nurheddin as powerful and enterprising as his father an unsuccessful attempt was made by the count of edessa to regain the fortress but nurheddin with a large army came to the rescue and after defeating the count with great slaughter marched into edessa and caused its fortifications to be razed to the ground that the town might never more be a bulwark of defence for the kingdom of jerusalem the road to the capital was now open and consternation seized the hearts of the christians nurheddin it was known was only waiting for a favourable opportunity to advance upon jerusalem and the armies of the cross weakened and divided 
were not in a condition to make any available resistance. The clergy were filled with grief and alarm, and wrote repeated letters to the Pope and the sovereigns of Europe, urging the expediency of a new crusade for the relief of Jerusalem. By far, the greater number of the priests of Palestine were natives of France, and these naturally looked first to their own country. The solicitations they sent to Louis the Seventh were urgent and oft repeated, and the chivalry of France began to talk once more of arming in defense of the birthplace of Jesus. The kings of Europe, whose interest it had not been to take any part in the First Crusade, began to bestir themselves in this, and a man appeared, eloquent as Peter the Hermit, to arouse the people as that preacher had done. We find, however, that the enthusiasm of the Second did not equal that of the First Crusade. In fact, the mania had reached its climax in the time of Peter the Hermit, and decreased regularly from that period. The Third Crusade was less general than the Second, and the Fourth than the Third, and so on, until the public enthusiasm was quite extinct, and Jerusalem returned at last to the dominion of its old masters without a convulsion in Christendom. Various reasons have been assigned for this, and one very generally put forward is that Europe was wearied with continued struggles and had become sick of precipitating itself upon Asia. Monsieur Guizot, in his admirable lectures upon European civilization, successfully combats this opinion and offers one of his own, which is far more satisfactory. He says in his eighth lecture, quote, It has been often repeated that Europe was tired of continually invading Asia. This expression appears to me exceedingly incorrect. It is not possible that human beings can be wearied with what they have not done, that the labors of their forefathers can fatigue them. Weariness is a personal, not an inherited feeling. The men of the 13th century were not fatigued by the Crusades of the 12th. They were influenced by another cause. A great change had taken place in ideas, sentiments, and social conditions. The same desires and the same wants were no longer felt. The same things were no longer believed. The people refused to believe what their ancestors were persuaded of. End quote. This is, in fact, the secret of the change, and its truth becomes more apparent as we advance in the history of the Crusades and compare the state of the public mind at the different periods when Godfrey of Bouillon, Louis the Seventh, and Richard I were chiefs and leaders of the movement. The Crusades themselves were the means of operating a great change in national ideas and advancing the civilization of Europe. In the time of Godfrey, the nobles were all-powerful and all-oppressive, and equally obnoxious to kings and people. During their absence, along with that portion of the community the deepest sunk in ignorance and superstition, both kings and people fortified themselves against the renewal of aristocratic tyranny, and in proportion as they became free, became civilized. It was during this period that, in France, the grand center of the crusading madness, 
the communes began to acquire strength and the monarch to possess a practical and not a merely theoretic authority order and comfort began to take root and when the second crusade was preached men were in consequence much less willing to abandon their homes than they had been during the first such pilgrims as had returned from the holy land came back with minds more liberal and expanded than when they set out they had come in contact with a people more civilized than themselves they had seen something more of the world and had lost some portion however small of the prejudice and bigotry of ignorance the institution of chivalry had also exercised its humanizing influence and coming bright and fresh through the ordeal of the crusades had softened the character and improved the hearts of the aristocratic order the trouvères and troubadours singing of love and war in strains pleasing to every class of society helped to root out the gloomy superstitions which at the first crusade filled the minds of all those who were able to think men became in consequence less exclusively under the mental thraldom of the priesthood and lost much of the credulity which formerly distinguished them the crusades appear never to have excited so much attention in england as on the continent of europe not because the people were less fanatical than their neighbors but because they were occupied in matters of graver interest the english were suffering too severely from the recent successful invasion of their soil to have much sympathy to bestow upon the distresses of people so far away as the christians of palestine and we find that they took no part in the first crusade and very little in the second even then those who engaged in it were chiefly norman knights and their vassals and not the saxon franklins and population who no doubt thought in their sorrow as many wise men have thought since that charity should begin at home germany was productive of more zeal in the cause and her raw uncivilized hordes continued to issue forth under the banners of the cross in numbers apparently undiminished when the enthusiasm had long been on the wane in other countries they were sunk at that time in a deeper slough of barbarism than the livelier nations around them and took in consequence a longer period to free themselves from their prejudices in fact the second crusade drew its chief supplies of men from that quarter where alone the expedition can be said to have retained any portion of popularity such was the state of mind of europe when pope eugenius moved by the reiterated entreaties of the christians of syria commissioned st bernard to preach a new crusade st bernard was a man eminently qualified for the mission he was endowed with an eloquence of the highest order could move an auditory to tears or laughter or fury as it pleased him and had led a life of such rigid and self-denying virtue that not even calumny could lift her finger and point it at him he had renounced high prospects in the church and contented himself with the simple abbacy of clairvaux in order that he might have the leisure he desired 
to raise his powerful voice against abuses wherever he found them vice met in him an austere and uncompromising reprover no man was too high for his reproach and none too low for his sympathy he was just as well suited for his age as peter the hermit had been for the age preceding he appealed more to the reason his predecessor to the passions peter the hermit collected a mob while saint bernard collected an army both were endowed with equal zeal and perseverance springing in the one from impulse and in the other from conviction and a desire to increase the influence of the church that great body of which he was a pillar and an ornament one of the first converts he made was in himself a host louis the seventh was both superstitious and tyrannical and in a fit of remorse for the infamous slaughter he had authorized at the sacking of vitry he made a vow to undertake the journey to the holy land footnote the sacking of vitry reflects indelible disgrace upon louis the seventh his predecessors had been long engaged in resistance to the outrageous powers assumed by the popes and louis continued the same policy the ecclesiastical chapter of bourges having elected an archbishop without his consent he proclaimed the election to be invalid and took severe and prompt measures against the refractory clergy thibault count de champagne took up arms in defence of the papal authority and entrenched himself in the town of vitry louis immediately took the field to chastise the rebel and he besieged the town with so much vigour that the count was forced to surrender upwards of thirteen hundred of the inhabitants fully one half of whom were women and children took refuge in the church and when the gates of the city were opened and all resistance had ceased louis inhumanely gave orders to set fire to the sacred edifice and a thousand persons perished in the flames End footnote. he was in this disposition when st bernard began to preach and wanted but little persuasion to embark in the cause his example had great influence upon the nobility who impoverished as many of them were by the sacrifices made by their fathers in the holy wars were anxious to repair their ruined fortunes by conquests on a foreign shore these took the field with such vassals as they could command and in a very short time an army was raised amounting to two hundred thousand men at vesely the monarch received the cross from the hands of st bernard on a platform elevated in sight of all the people several nobles three bishops and his queen eleanor of aquitaine were present at this ceremony and enrolled themselves under the banner of the cross st bernard cutting up his red sacerdotal vestments and making crosses of them to be sewn on the shoulders of the people an exhortation from the pope was read to the multitude granting remission of their sins to all who should join the crusade and directing that no man on that holy pilgrimage should encumber himself with heavy baggage and vain superfluities 
and that the nobles should not travel with dogs or falcons to lead them from the direct road as had happened to so many during the first crusade the command of the army was offered to st bernard but he wisely refused to accept a station for which his habits had unqualified him after consecrating louis with great solemnity at saint denis as chief of the expedition he continued his course through the country stirring up the people wherever he went so high an opinion was entertained of his sanctity that he was thought to be animated by the spirit of prophecy and to be gifted with the power of working miracles many women excited by his eloquence and encouraged by his predictions forsook their husbands and children and clothing themselves in male attire hastened to the war st bernard himself wrote a letter to the pope detailing his success and stating that in several towns there did not remain a single male inhabitant capable of bearing arms and that everywhere castles and towns were to be seen filled with women weeping for their absent husbands but in spite of this apparent enthusiasm the numbers who really took up arms were inconsiderable and not to be compared to the swarms of the first crusade a levy of no more than two hundred thousand men which was the utmost the number amounted to could hardly have depopulated a country like france to the extent mentioned by saint bernard his description of the state of the country appears therefore to have been much more poetical than true suger the able minister of louis endeavoured to dissuade him from undertaking so long a journey at a time when his own dominions so much needed his presence but the king was pricked in his conscience by the cruelties of vitry and was anxious to make the only reparation which the religion of that day considered sufficient he was desirous moreover of testifying to the world that though he could brave the temporal power of the church when it encroached upon his prerogatives he could render all due obedience to its spiritual decrees whenever it suited his interest or tallied with his prejudices to do so suger therefore implored in vain and louis received the pilgrim's staff at saint denis and made all preparations for his pilgrimage End of chapter 1, part 6 Recording by Linda Johnson